Hello and welcome to the History Film Club. I'm Alex von Tanzelman, a historian and screenwriter. And I'm Hannah Gregg, a historian and a consultant to film and television. Hannah, we have a very exciting applicant to join the History Film Club today. We have Professor Nicholas Guyatt. Nick is a professor in North American History at the University of Cambridge and Fellow of Jesus College. He's the author of many books about American history from the 18th century to the present. Most recently, just newly published, is The Hated Cage, an American tragedy in Britain's most terrifying prison. He's getting amazing reviews. Welcome, Nick. Hello, Alex. Hello, Hannah. How are you guys doing? very good and you've got the charming sound of birdsong in the background which i think our listeners are going to love a little i'm so sorry i'm in my my shed which is going to seem super bourgeois but um i'm so excited to be doing this interview with you guys and like to have a chance to join the club it's nerve-wracking but i'm I'm very excited well we are very strict the bird song doesn't really set set the soundtrack for uh dartmoor prison does it or you know the hated cage (laughs) (laughs) well there there are no there are no trees on dartmoor right so like in that sense the birds fly away from the place so tell us a bit about the hated cage just for a little bit of background for our listeners um what is this prison and what's you know why was it britain's most terrifying prison i like to i like to try and perform the idea that i'm um uh, you know i find my books in a very kind of studious and very kind of logical process but actually i ran into this one just because i was driving around dartmoor with my family on a holiday a few years ago and most people i guess here in britain will know that there's a prison on dartmoor um most people will know that that's a prison that's had you know hardened convicts conscientious objectors, uh, Irish Republicans, all kinds of other people who've been there over the course of 150 years since it opened in the 1850s. But what I didn't know is that Dartmoor Prison, um, the same buildings in effect which are there right now, had a prehistory. Uh, And in 1809, it was opened as a prison of war, originally for French prisoners from the Napoleonic Wars, but then for American prisoners during the War of 1812. So I was kind of stunned to discover that six and a half thousand American prisoners, mostly sailors, were stuck in southwest England in Dartmoor prison during the War of 1812. And that would have made Dartmoor the 20th largest city in the United States had it been in North America. So the wild story of what happened to these guys and the story of the prison is the thing I tried to tell in the book. So it's been a real ride for me. I'm so glad you said that it was a discovery for you, Nick, as well, because I was feeling a little bit ashamed as a historian of 18th and early 19th century British history that I wasn't aware of this story in advance. And um you know, admittedly, I'm not a historian of kind of maritime history or necessarily war, but it does feel like a story that has sort of just been lost um, and you're rescuing it again. Yeah, I mean, I think that's also partly because um, at the end of the war, I mean, like a lot of war prisons, right? Like when the war ends, the prison disappears. And the weird thing about Dartmoor is that it was built out of granite. So actually there were other war prisons, a particular one pretty close to Peterborough called Norman Cross, which they made out of wood. And at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, so in 1815, they basically took the wood down and they sold it as firewood. So, you know, like the prison vanishes, right? But with Dartmoor Prison, the granite stays there. I mean, there's like a mile uh, circumference wall around the prison buildings. So for 30, 40 years or so after 1815, it just lay there as this kind of ruin. And then it was turned into a criminal prison in the 1850s, partly because we here in Britain uh, got a petition from the Australians who were like, could you please stop sending us convicts? <laughs> you know, Australia's rebranding. We're not the convict place anymore. And so at that point, um, the British government had to try and figure out ways to do things with people 
people who'd previously been sent to Australia who committed crimes. So they brought Dartmoor Prison back to life and Dartmoor became so kind of iconic, I think, as a criminal prison that we sort of forgot this earlier story, which is, to me, amazing. I mean, the earlier story is, it's completely nuts. Like every prison cliche took place in Dartmoor Prison from like 1809 to 1815. It's crazy. So obviously what we would like to see is a movie of the hated cage. I don't know if that's in preparation, but I certainly hope so. Uh, any film scouts out there, <laughs> they can always inquire as to whether the rights are available. But one thing we were noticing is that there aren't actually very many films about the War of 1812, are there? No, I mean, the whole conflict has been slightly memory-holed in the United States. Um, and I have a kind of strange um, relationship with this because I, I taught, my first job uh, I taught in Canada, in Vancouver, a university called Simon Fraser. And then I came back to Britain to teach here. I'd also taught a little bit in the United States because I did my PhD in America. So I actually have taught the War of 1812 in these three places, right? In Britain, in Canada, and in the US. And like, no one can agree what the War of 1812 is about. No one can agree <laughs> who won. Like, everybody has a kind of conflicting interpretation. And arguably, the Canadians are most proud of it because one of the bits of the War of 1812 was a US invasion of Canada, which didn't succeed. But you know, there's really grim stuff for the US, right? Like the burning of Washington, D.C. by the British in August of 1814. So it became a kind of hard war during the war to get behind. And then for that reason, I guess, it was kind of a hard war to, to remember. But there's one other thing I should say about it too, which is that obviously like in 1815, when Britain and the US are fighting each other, nobody knows that this is the last time that Britain and the US are going to go to war with each other. So ever mm. since then, we've had no further conflicts between Britain and the United States. We've had like moments of tension in the 19th century, but no actual wars. So in a strange kind of way, this basically got marooned, this moment and this hostility by the course of events thereafter. So again, to this a bit in the book, I mean, it's really interesting to think about what we remember and what we don't. So this was never really a convenient story about Britons and Americans hating each other after 1815. I think especially when you get into the you know rise of the film industry in the 20th century, then obviously you've got that happening kind of at the end of World War One through World War Two it's really not in the interests of filmmakers at that point in the US or Britain to be like, hey, so we all really hated each other, right? And this terrible stuff happened, you know. They're actually trying to do sort of very much the opposite in propaganda terms. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even more recently, if I think about probably like in my lifetime, the three most kind of significant or iconic settings of, say, the American Revolutionary War to film, I'd say they're probably the Pacino movie, Revolution, which came out in 1985, there's The Patriot with Mel Gibson, which came out in oh, 2000. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, which is an interesting, interesting film uh, in lots of ways. Uh, and then there's, um, uh, you remember there's that miniseries on HBO um, called John Adams? Mm. Uh, and with Paul Giamatti as John Adams. So it's basically like kind of the 50 years we're talking about from kind of 1770 through the end of the War of 1812. That's the period that that miniseries covers in seven or eight episodes. But here's the weird thing, guys. Those three films or TV series, not one of them is directed by an American. So the first one, Revolution, is directed by Hugh Hudson, the guy who did Chariots of Fire. It's all made in Britain. Um, Dartmoor actually stands in for the lakes in New York, bizarrely. Uh, Roland Emmerich made The Patriot, so, you know, German director with an Australian as the kind of star. And then uh, the HBO show, John Adams, the, the director was Tom Hooper. You guys probably know, right? He's the, then a big up and coming British director now has done a ton of things. So it's really interesting to me that the kind of creative 
legacy, if you like, of the American Revolution on film is basically curated by these non-Americans, whether stars or directors. And do you think the attraction in those films is much more the revolutionary story? There's an ideological push behind those that perhaps the 1812 moment doesn't fit so well within in terms of Hollywood and, well, British filmmaking, actually, as you pointed out to us. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because in some ways, I'd say it's a bit of a surprise there aren't more films about the revolution. I mean, if you think about its kind of iconic status and you know like the sort of living status of the revolutionary constitutional period in american political life um i mean again for those people who listen to you from the us um they'll know what i'm talking about but for people who are based in the uk or elsewhere i mean even stuff like the american constitution and the supreme court a lot of this is about trying to get back in touch with the founders right with the founding generation so with that in view, it seems kind of amazing to me that there aren't more films about the American Revolutionary Era, let alone the War of 1812. I mean, the revolution is pretty underserved by film. And, um, and of those films I mentioned, I mean, the two which are completely fictional, so Revolution with Pacino and then um, The Patriot with Mel Gibson, I think what's fascinating is they both depict these guys who are sort of like forced to become part of the revolution. Like they don't really want to break with Britain. In the case of Patriot, I think Mel Gibson spends like two years after 1776 trying to stay out of the war and then kind of get sucked in. So there's nothing really proud or like defiant about either of those films. In a way, it's almost like, well, we have to get involved in this revolution. So there is a sort of reluctance on film to embrace the idea that the American Revolution was this amazing event, which every Patriot always knew was a good idea. In a way, there's a resignation, I guess, about the films, which is just kind of weird. So I think like big historical moments just happening by accident. <laughs> People stumbling into well, yeah. something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah and you've been become a revolutionary, it, right? but here I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think it's so interesting to watch those two films. I mean, they're not amazing films by any means, but it's so interesting to watch Revolution and The Patriot and see the extent to which the filmmakers are saying, we didn't want to do this. We really didn't want to leave Britain. They forced us. We gave you two years of making war on us before we decided to join forces. And uh, yeah, it's a very weird dynamic. And again, not what you'd expect if you think about the sort of full-blown patriotism you often think about around things like the 4th of July or, you know, America's a patriotic bunch, right? So it's sort of odd to think that these films aren't more numerous and that they don't do a more kind of full-throated job of saying hey the american revolution was always our destiny i suppose what you would say is like the obvious piece that's a kind of standing against that is musical hamilton which of course has now been filmed and can be seen but is a stage show and has been tremendously successful which does kind of go in on that narrative and has you know i mean i think well, certainly at least one British critic reacted very badly to the portrayal of uh, George III and was very upset about it being very anti-British, um, which, you know, to be honest, I think it's pretty mild. Um, certainly hasn't seen a patriot. <laughs> <laughs> I, w I wonder if this goes back to the point you made before, Alex, about um, the kind of um, infrastructure almost of the film industry, especially the kind of Hollywood film industry, because I think you're right. I mean, I, I find the Jonathan kind of Groff, uh, George III uh, portrayal. I mean, it's like so caricaturish. And I mean, because it's a musical, right? So that's not a surprise. But The Patriot, I mean, you guys might remember, uh, you may be too young to remember, I don't know. But back in 2000, when it came out, there was like this massive backlash from people in Britain complaining about the fact that the head British uh, soldier, so this kind of general who was, or, or he may have been a colonel, but he was um, uh, played by Jason Isaacs, and he was a made-up figure, right? That he was basically being portrayed as this kind of almost Nazi-like character. So there's a famous scene 
uh, or infamous scene in which a bunch of Americans are taking refuge in a church and he tortures it, right? So everyone's like, how outrageous that you would portray the British in this light. Over here in the UK, that was the kind of backlash. So maybe there is something that makes it quite hard, given just the structure of the film business, for us actually to have a lot of successful films about what um, uh, monsters the British were. <laughs> or just like yeah. Brits as bad guys historically, which of course is ironic, right? Because Brits as bad guys as like supervillains or whatever, Hollywood is totally fine with. Right, but that's fiction. I mean, I suppose the thing is also the picture, I mean, you mentioned that particular scene and for viewers that haven't seen it, um, so it's very controversial, this church burning scene, and it is not based on anything that happened in the Revolutionary War. In fact, what it tends to recall is the Nazi massacre of French villagers in Urdor-sur-Glan, 1944. Um, and I, one American historian, Richard F. Snow, actually said, like, you know, of course it never happened. If it had, do you think Americans would have forgotten it? It could have kept us out of World War I. Um, but, you know, obviously there was a great deal of upset over that, which is very deliberately a kind of allusion to a Nazi kind of event rather than actually a British one. Um, but it is interesting, isn't it, what you're saying, that like even though it, there's something about sort of fictional British villains work, but real ones, this, you know, there's definitely a squeamishness about that a little bit. I mean, he's he is fictionalised, so it's um, the character in the film in The Patriot is called uh, Colonel Tavington, but he's kind of based a bit on real um, soldier Bannister Tarlington, Tarleton, I think. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't, so, oh, and, and there are a number of figures I think that that um, are kind of put together as a kind of composite. But but that notion of him being the sort of person that would shoot a wounded person to death or would torture church or whatever. I mean, clearly one of the things, one of the more unsavoury elements of the kind of public outcry over here about it was the suggestion the director, as a German, was effectively trying to overlay his own country's kind of terrible history, sort of like arrogate that to the British, as it were, which I'm sure wasn't true. I mean, it just was kind of it's a Hollywoodization, right? I mean, they wanted a really terrible villain, but it was almost like the convention of thinking that Brits could be as evil as you'd like them to be in Hollywood movies. When you actually mapped it onto things that supposedly had really happened, everyone started clutching their pearls, which again is really interesting <laughs> in thinking about the relationship between history and film. It's, it's, it's interesting that the response to that was that if that had really happened, you know, America and Britain would never have been friends ever again. Because, I mean, that's one of the points that you make in the book, The Hated Cage, about the, kind of the massacre that happens in Dartmoor Prison, is obviously the American prisoners at the time felt that this would never be forgotten. This is just horrific, horrific moments and horrific experience that would live on um, in American memory. And of course, it didn't. <laughs> it didn't live on. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly the point I tried to make. And I mean, what's so poignant is that many of these American prisoners were hanging out in the prison with like journals and diaries. You could kind of take what you liked into the prison. I mean, it's, we, we don't have time to get into it, but it's a mad story. So you could basically take what you wanted. So they had things like, you know, roulette wheels. They had like theatrical scenery. You know, they had a ton of money. They had a lending library, but they also had paper <laughs> for journals and diaries and so on. So they're literally writing in their journals and diaries on the night of this massacre, uh, when British uh, prison guards managed to murder nine Americans, nine unarmed prisoners in cold blood, uh, after they've mistakenly believed the guards, the Americans are trying to escape. Uh, one of the prisoners goes off and writes in his diary, this is gonna be like the Boston massacre back in 1770, which is the very first moment in the John Adams miniseries. So like the moment where the Brits killed five people in Boston back in March of 1770. So this, this prisoner at Dartmoor is like, this will always be remembered. This is actually worse than that massacre, will never be forgotten. And 
there's something a little bit disconcerting, isn't there, about the idea that if the course of history veers away from your suffering, you know, from your truth, as it were, in terms of those Americans, actually, you're screwed. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you're not going to get remembered. Completely. And I mean, actually, also, and if it's not in the interests of the 20th and 21st century film industry, then it's even more likely to be forgotten, you know, no, for quite specific, absolutely. narrow, modern reasons. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So Nick, before we started this podcast, I did go down a bit of a rabbit hole looking for films that were set in 1812, because, you know, we thought there weren't that many. And I came across a film from, from 1940 called Captain Caution, which is a swashbuckler that's set at sea. And the premise of the um, story is that um, a young woman's father's ship is um, attacked and the, the, British, the, the American captain is killed by the British and they're captured. And this young woman and a hero have to um, battle against the, um, the, the horrible British uh, captors in order to release themselves. But anyway, the film was made in Britain in 1940 and apparently it was delayed because there were so many concerns that the plot was too anti-British. Um, and it had to be kind of uh, mediated a little bit in order to tailor it to the British audience. But that totally fits with what you and Alex are suggesting about this kind of culture of needing to set heroes and villains within a kind of wider cultural context of what the audience wants to see at that moment. Well, that's so interesting. I uh, didn't know that film. Uh, I may have been the person before on Google who was like, what are the films about? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, quite extraordinary, really, actually, in that it came out. So it came out in August 1940. I mean, unbelievable timing, obviously, from the point of view of um, World War II and so on. So clearly, they probably were quite concerned about it. It, it, has, it has amazing taglines. Sorry, if this is obviously my kind of film. It's going to go in the library because it says, Fighting rogues of the sea, they struck terror in the hearts of men and captured the hearts of women. In love and adventure in danger, they stood shoulder to shoulder, one for all and all for one. It's just like, it just sounds amazing. It sounds great. I've got to see it. I know. Yeah, and we need to organise a viewing. We do need. And then apparently the script was rewritten and when they rewrote it, they said, don't worry, it's all action. We're not actually going to do really much of a plot. If we put a plot in, it's just because we need the cameras to reset. So, so it's just going to be action, action, action. <laughs> So no one's going to care about the anti-British elements of it. It's just about fighting. <laughs> wow, well, you know, you, so. you've just made me realise, actually, that there might be another reason that there aren't many War of 1812 films, which is that um, a lot of the action would be set at sea, right? So yeah. I mentioned that these guys in Dartmoor, the six and a half thousand, nearly all of them are sailors, and nearly all of them are kind of civilians, so they're privateersmen. So the US basically decides it doesn't want to have a war with a big navy because it costs a lot of money and the Royal Navy is really formidable. So instead, it kind of privatises the war. But if you think about the challenge of doing like that part of the movie. I mean, nobody wants to make a film at sea. No. And even it's like swashbuckling era, right? I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you, you can think of a lot of productions that go badly wrong just because yeah. of the fact that they're set at sea. So maybe that's part of it. And that's the reason I'm, I'm hopeful that this um, prison drama might actually work better for TV or for film. Just because like, you know, um, once you've got your location, amazing things happen inside this prison, but the prisoners are not really going anywhere. Yeah, you just build your prison set, make it a bit tight. That's it. And uh, yeah, dark, and then you're done. That's like absolutely <laughs> much cheaper than a sea battle. Like yeah. really, you know, sea battles cost a fortune. <laughs> Although in Master and Commander, they get around that just by mostly filming in the captain's cabin, don't they? So, you know, it's just like yeah. a small And just rock room. the camera back and forth <laughs> yeah, a bit. Exactly, you know, yeah. just move, move the camera, yeah. it's fine. Then it's like, oh. <laughs> do you guys uh, do you guys like Master and Commander? I'm sorry I have to ask, but like it's kind of a guilty pleasure of mine. But I don't know, like, are we allowed to like it? 
Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I, I liked so. it. I, I liked it. Yeah. Well, just because I mean, Ru- Rusty, Rusty is like he's he's funny. It's like as a Russell Crowe film, it's a particularly amusing one. <laughs> it is. I mean, I think. I mean, I actually think that film is really quite good. I think generally the opinion is that it's quite good, and a lot of people are quite annoyed that there wasn't a sequel. I mean, you know, obviously it's sort of mega kind of masculinity at sea. All of this. I think it's a very boys' own film, but actually, I think it's really quite well made. I think it's it's a shame it didn't. I mean, I don't think it set the box office on fire, which is why they didn't make the rest of the series. Um, right, the and was very expensive, presumably. I mean, must have been incredibly, like I say, you know, sea battles yeah. or set at sea, bad plan, really bad plan, yeah. so, so pricey. I mean, even in the age of, um, you know, sort of really sophisticated visual effects, that is still a very, very expensive thing to tackle. Yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, I do, I think it was, I think it's really fun. Yeah. <laughs> You're probably expecting well, some complicated criticism, weren't you, Nick? We're just like, we just like films. We like yeah. it. Yeah. No, I, no <laughs> ser- seriously, I'm, I'm delighted. Like, that film, um, uh, I, th- I think, again, partly because Russell Crowe had sort of stopped being an actor and had become kind of like, you know, like when stars become so big that they sort of become, like Cruise or whatever, they become sort of phenomena that are above the acting. I think it was very much kind of in that moment in his career. And, um, yeah, I did really like it. I like the Galapagos stuff, you know, the mm, sort of yeah. Paul Bettany being carried around, like being really sick in the Galapagos with like cello music playing i don't know it's very affecting yeah i thought so yeah i mean i think there's still kind of people who would love a sequel but of course you've now got the problem that um russell crowe and paul bettany are quite a lot older so would you recast mm, yeah. tricky you know mm. they're big well, white succeeds yeah well britain is perpetually at war in the era of that so i mean at least many years later the war is still going yes, on exactly well look thank you nick i mean and we like to ask the applicants to the history film club to nominate a favorite uh, film or tv production to add to our club library so i was wondering what you had in mind uh, okay so i'm nervous about this because i want to confess that i've not listened to every podcast you haven't you done like two or three what? series at this point <laughs> Yes. Yeah, well, no, this is it, oh, right? So, shocking. so this is it. So like, there isn't an easily available list of the films <laughs> in your library, right? Like I Googled for one, thinking I should do that before I suggested something. Because I think my suggestion is quite obvious, so I might get in trouble. We'll try. Let's well, try. give it a go. Okay, well, for a bunch of reasons I will justify, I would like to propose that you guys accept into your august library the 2002 version of The Count of Monte Cristo. No, we don't. Okay, have no it. one has suggested that. Brilliant. Okay, Say so why. I will and tell you why I think that you should. version. Yeah. Yeah. So it has to be that version. Uh, it has to be that version for a number of reasons. One of them that it has a really hilarious Guy Pierce performance as the kind of head villain. It's uh, Jim Caviezel before the kind of Passion of the Christ moment, which is sort of for Hollywood the equivalent of the Trump election in 2016. Like everything terrible happens after the Passion of the Christ. So Jim Caviezel <laughs> before that is in like superb form as the hero Edmund Dantes. But there is a Dartmoor connection which I wanted to mention, which is that the film begins with uh, Jim Caviezel as a sailor on a French ship sending his ship to the island of Elba at the end of 1814 or the beginning of 1815 and effectively having to land on Elba to get medical attention for one of his shipmates who's really ill. So they drag this shipmate onto Elba and of course who is there but Napoleon? Uh, And it is heavily implied that Napoleon, as a kind of condition for having his uh, men help out with this sick sailor, 
asks Edmund Dantes, Jim Caviezel's character, to take a letter back to the mainland. Uh, so that's the condition on which he's going to give medical support to Jim Caviezel's shipmate. So, of course, that then it's implied is the reason that Napoleon is able to escape from Elba, go off and take over France again. And that matters for my story uh, in Dartmoor, because it's the fact that Napoleon gets back into power in March of 1815, which means that the American sailors in Dartmoor prison can't get evacuated. So they basically can't be taken back to the US because all of the ships that would take them back have to go off to France to fight Napoleon. So I do want to point out that I realize that the Count of Monte Cristo is not fact, <laughs> it's fiction. <laughs> but it's such a cool- More revelations, the Dartmoor. Well, okay, but there's also, there's also like a prison, right? So there's the Chateau d'If, there's Richard Harris as the priest who helps Jim Caviezel and you guys have seen the film right I no I haven't seen, seen it fab cast I mean oh my god you will not believe who else is in it a baby Henry Cavill no oh okay oh my <laughs> god Seriously. Henry Cavill hi baby he must is, be very baby he must be he is he is Jim Caviezel's son in the final scenes of the film but I cannot tell you what an you know I watched this film ironically first time around but I watched it more recently with a guilty sense of like no irony it is a proper swashbuckler it's a lot of fun filmed in Malta and in Ireland lots of money thrown at it Kevin Costner's favourite director directing it so it's trashy in a good way um, uh, yeah, I really, really recommend it. So I, I put it for your consideration, guys. Oh, it sounds it sounds great. I Amazing. think you should take it. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I mean, I personally do regard this as a historical film. So my rule has always been that it's a historical film, not if it's just set in the past necessarily, because, I mean, you know, like, for instance, Jane Austen um, was writing contemporary novels, so adaptations of that, you know, are sort of only semi-historical. But um, it is a historical film if it engages with an actual historical event or includes an actual historical character in my opinion. Right. So, so I think Napoleon, you know, you're in. You're yeah, in. Are we, are, we finesse, are we finessing our definitions of historical films? <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> well, that was always the definition I used when I did real history, when I did okay. this column. I thought that, that's what counts as a historical movie is if it actually engages with history in some way. Because if, if it doesn't, then, you know, then it's, it's, I mean, it's still interesting and it can still be an interesting view on how we look at the past. But that was, that, that was, my, that was my view. So I think shoving Napoleon in there, yeah, absolutely. Hooray. <laughs> yes, Hooray. Definitely real. Um, and it okay. looks fabulous. I have to say, I'm mad keen to see this. And it looks very much like the kind of thing Alexandre Dumas would have been quite happy to have made. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think that is actually precisely it. Like, it has that sort of Dumas sense of sort of like that slight schlockiness in Dumas is mm. very much there. I mean, Louis Guzman is in it as the manservant of the Count of Monte Cristo. And the poster says things like Count on Adventure, Count on Action, <laughs> Count on Revenge. Seriously, you guys are going to love it. Count on Monte Cristo, yay! <laughs> oh my God, I love it. Yeah, no, this looks amazing. Well, I mean, certainly, I think we should add that to the library. And I mean, we're going to have a double bill of that and Captain Caution. And Captain Caution, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. they do sound like an excellent <laughs> pairing. And um, I think there's another Count of Monte Cristo in development somewhere for television, but we won't watch oh, that really? ever. We're not going to watch it now. That's not allowed. Only, only 2002 film is mm. <laughs> Nick, can we also ask our um, applicants to the film club to nominate something they'd like to ban from the club? Um, that can be a pet hate or a production is there something that you'd like to suggest that we should bin uh, so I talked to my family about this again uh, given my nervousness about appearing for this interview for the club uh, my initial thought had been that I would like to ban um, uh, villains who turn to the hero and say we're not so different you and I um, <laughs> but 
but my, my kids said that that was too basic. Uh, and so their suggestion, which I'm bringing to you, is that we should ban uh, side-eye at the audience jokes about the future in historical films. So the classic example would be Billy Zane in Titanic saying, oh, this Picasso will not amount to much. Uh, or uh, Forrest Gump in the movie Forrest Gump saying, oh, I don't know about buying shares in this fruit company, Apple. Uh, those kinds of references for the audience where uh, they kind of break the fourth wall uh, and the thing becomes hammier than it needs to. That's my children's yeah. uh, entry into this competition. Well, I like their idea, but we'd lose a lot of films, though, wouldn't we? Yeah, That's the trouble. and also all of mine, I always put this in the screenplay as I write. <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that your screenwriting tag, is it, Alex? It is. Nod, I love nod. it. <laughs> I really oh. enjoy it. Well, uh, oh, the thing yeah. is, I do think it depends a bit on context. No, I don't do it in all of mine. Um, <laughs> I've just recently <laughs> done it in something I've written. But I think oh. it's, it does depend on your tone and context. Like, I would definitely do it in a historical comedy. I would not do it in a historical okay. drama because, of course, it would completely undermine the moment, be hammy and ridiculous. Um, oh, but this is going so well. well we can do it. We, can do it. We, <laughs> we could perhaps kind of nuance it a bit instead of and suggest if it's done badly that it shouldn't be allowed. It's fine if Alex okay. does it. If I Alex writes it. <laughs> that's I, okay. I could just, I could just ban Billy Zane. I mean, if that's easier. Oh, I oh, don't know. Poor Billy. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I do totally take your point, though, and now I'm thinking, oh, my God, maybe I should revise that script. <laughs> well, we could go back to, to Nick's initial suggestion, which was villains turning around saying, we're not so different after all. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. That, then right? we have to ban Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, Raiders oh, of the yeah. Lost Ark was oh, the that originated oh. that. Gladiator. Uh, so this we could really just cut the okay, okay, okay. How about we just ban any other adaptations of the Count of Monte Cristo or something? Yes, <laughs> yes. We'll never need another. To preserve the integrity of the 2002 one. Okay, right, I, I reckon. I think it's fine. I think we can, we can <laughs> under specific circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> I always imagine, I'm trying to remember the um, examples of when I've seen it done well, and now I've obviously got a complete mind blank, so like I'm really not doing very well at defending my schlocky side. Um, All of yeah. the Back to the Futures. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, true. Exactly. Good point. The Back to the Futures did very well. But you see, that's in a comedy setting. I do think it's a bit different okay, in, comedy in comedy and comedy drama. Setting. In drama, yeah. it does tend to land like a massive clunk. Um, mm. I do agree. Yes. I wouldn't yeah. do it in drama. It always becomes like product placement. Oh, if only there'd be a watch invented by someone called Tag or something. Exactly. <laughs> Are you guys sponsored by Tag? This is a really high-end yeah. podcast. I mean, look, if they want to get in touch, I'm just saying we, <laughs> we would probably have a talk to them. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely like, I totally, totally do take a point. I think it's quite funny, actually. I mean, it definitely does land, as I say, with a very heavy weight in drama. Um, but yeah, I can quite enjoy it in comedy if it's done in the right tone, is what I would say. But I do, I do take your point. It's a fair point. Well, right. it's okay. Now that Nick has totally derailed your secret scripts, <laughs> we have to decide <laughs> <laughs> whether or not we're going to admit him to the club. <laughs> oh, so definitely. Tense. I mean, come on, you know, like we're not <laughs> over a mere thing like undermining and mining my entire screenwriting style. Why <laughs> would we? <laughs> Oh, I told you friends. I should have done prep. I should have <laughs> No, it's, um, uh, don't worry, you wouldn't have. It's not been made yet. Uh, probably never now, now that we've heard this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, 
no, of course. Um, Nicholas Guy, it would be our great pleasure to welcome you to the History Film Club. You are in. Woo! Hey, thank you, guys. This is such an honour and a pleasure. Well, good. And we do love to offer all our new members a drink from the club bar, which, of course, can make any drink, historical or modern, soft or hard, whatever is uh, your poison. So what can we get you? Uh, I think I'll have a margarita, maybe infused with a sort of Gulf of the Caribbean pirate 1812 vibe. Cool. That okay. sounds fancy. Sounds nice. Ooh, we'll all have those. That sounds lovely. <laughs> well. We'll get that from the club bar. And thank you very much. New guy at the book is The Hated Cage and it's out now. <laughs>